You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi there, I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This year, 2019, is the 25th anniversary of Generation X. Now, Generation X was one of my favorite comic books uh, when I was in high school. It came out when I was entering grade 8, and it finished. Uh, it concluded its run just after I graduated from high school. It took me through high school, and I would ride my bike to the comic book shop every single week, and that was the only comic that I picked up consistently. I was on board from the first issue all the way to its conclusion with issue number 75. I loved the characters. I loved the stories. I was there through the ups and downs because it did have some some low points and some, you know, not as memorable moments. But uh, but overall, I loved it. I don't know how many other people out there love Generation X. I don't know how many downloads these episodes are going to get, but I've collected a series of interviews. I spent the last couple of years gathering these up from the people who um, have worked on Generation X over the years, and I'm going to be sharing them with you. So what I want to do here today is start uh, with Scott Lobdell, who is the creator, the co-creator of Generation X. Uh, Scott, of course, worked um, on X-Men for many years and stuff, and he had the opportunity to relaunch the New Mutants, but decided to go in a little bit of a different direction. So I will let him tell the story in what is the first of several Generation X interviews. Now, these interviews don't correspond with any epic collections, because as of this recording, there are no Generation X epic collections. I'm just going to share these interviews because I just love this book, um... And I don't think Marvel's going to do much to celebrate the 25th anniversary here. So this is uh, all up to me. I hope you enjoy them. Spread them around. Share them with your friends. uh, Share them with people you think love Generation X. And let's get the ball rolling. Um, Quick shout out for Patreon. If you want to pledge a couple of bucks and help support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash thunderquack and support all of the podcasts like mine that are on the Thunderquack Podcast Network. You can also head over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and maybe give us a rating on Facebook, because you know you can do that. You can give us a five-star rating and leave a couple comments about how much you enjoy this podcast. I would really appreciate that, because it just helps us look a little bit more official. So, why don't we get on with it now? This is the very first Generation X interview. This one is with co-creator Scott Lubdale. Hope you enjoy it. In a couple years, it's going to be 25 years since that, that number one came out. Wow, when will that be? That is in uh, t- uh, 2019. That's so interesting. I saw Chris Petrella at a uh, comic book convention, and it was really like the first time we had seen each other in at least 20 years. You know, And we took a, 
picture together, and it occurred to me that there's never been a picture of us together, so it was kind of surprising. You know? No way, really. Wow. Yeah, but we just got to, uh, but we reflected on the fact that we're old men now. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's good. I never, um, I didn't really follow Generation X after I left. I know that they killed some of them off and stuff, but I never, uh, you know, I never followed it. So. Yeah, well, I think I feel like a lot of creators, especially with a book that you've created, if you try following it, then you'd probably just get mad at the direction that it's going. <laughs> yeah, why the point? And, and when I take over a book, I you know, I mean, I look at, I try to read what somebody else has written. Yep. But that's really the most you can do. You and then you have to guess. You know. So, exactly. Yeah. Like when I took on um, uh, Uncanny X Men. At first, the first issue that I got to do myself, it was a two-parter, and I, uh, it was um, Forge and uh, Storm breaking up. And oh, yeah. the thing is, like, even at the time, people were saying, like, oh, you can't believe you broke them up. I said, look, let's be honest. They haven't even spoken on camera in 20, you know, 30, 40 issues. You know, it's like, you know, but people got this idea in their head that, like, oh, there are a couple. It's like, well, you know, we don't see them be a couple. They're not in the same room. Too. They don't have hands. They don't share anything. They don't talk. So, it's, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's the thing. Is that, you know, so when I got on the book, it was like either, okay, I'm either going to keep them together or have them move on. So I had to move on, and, you know. As it happens. And then people were mad at me. They were like saying, some people were upset. They were saying like, oh, Storm would never cry. I'm like, Storm would never cry? What, is she a robot? Like, she would never cry? Like, <laughs> I've never heard that one. Yeah, you right. You know, I mean, I think she's pretty... Yeah, she's a goddess. I think she's pretty emotional, but, you know. Well, especially so, dealing but, with but, these type of things, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. So you just got to, uh, you know, you're right. That's why it's better just, you know, after you've read something, you just move on. And, or mm. once you've written something, you just move on. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about the, the origin of Generation X. How did it come? How did it come to be? Where did the idea come from? Well, originally, the editor-in-chief, Bob Harris, said to me, uh, you know, because they had X-Force out, and so they didn't have a New Mutants book, and he said, let's do uh, New Mutants, and you could, you know, do something with it. And I was like, okay. So over that weekend, I was thinking about the things I liked about the New Mutants and the things I didn't like, and one of the things I didn't like, I kind of didn't like about the afternoon in general was, like, the fact that there's so many what I call uh, Ken and Barbie mutants in the sense that everybody's like really good looking and they have great bodies and everything is perfect and if they just didn't use their powers they would be fine like you know Jean Grey is a perfect example like you know she's like oh I'm a mutant it's like well you don't really have to be a mutant you could just walk around society and somebody would just be like oh you're really hot so right. but to me like the mutants that are cool and the superheroes that were cool are like Nightcrawler and Thing and you know characters that couldn't change their appearance but you know but like you know, I mean like think of the new mutants the only new mutant I can think of and I could be wrong I'm just making this up but the only new mutant I can think of is Rain the werewolf girl right yeah Wolfsbane and even she could turn it on and off and then uh, Sunspot and even he could turn his powers on and off and so I was like you know what I want to invent I mean I want to work with a bunch of characters that can't turn off their powers you know like skin and chamber and penance you know it's like 
let's look at what happens when, you know, you have like the really good looking characters and the really horrific characters and, you know, mm-hmm. bump them up against each other. And so then I was thinking, you know, we've seen the school a hundred times at that point, the mansion. And I thought, well, what if, you know, where could they go? And I'm like, oh, they could go to, uh, you know, Massachusetts Academy because all the Hellions died. So maybe that becomes Xavier's school and Xavier's school becomes the Xavier Institute since it's not really school anymore. And so by the end of the weekend, when I saw Bob on Monday, I said, you know what? I will do New Mutants, but I don't want to do New Mutants. I want to call it Generation X. And I want it to be about, you know, a bunch of new kids and a bunch of, uh, it would be at the Massachusetts Academy. And at the time I had only thought of Banshee because I always liked him as a character and he was a cop and I thought, okay, well, it's a good training thing. And, you know, he wasn't super violent like Cable and he wasn't a pacifist like Xavier, he was more practical because he'd been, you know, an Interpol agent. He'd been a New York cop. And then it was only afterwards when I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, that'd be so cool if Emma was on the group. And I thought, you know, she'd feel bad because all the Hellions got killed. So maybe everybody would be like, well, we don't want you in charge of these kids. But Xavier would understand that she had something to prove by this group. So it was all, you know, so it all kind of started, you know, very organically, but it was never, uh, the goal was to try to not make it like the X-Men or like the New Mutants or any other group. And, you know, when Chris and I finally started designing it and the designs were coming in, people would stop by and they'd be like, oh, that's cool, but where's the Wolverine character? Where's the Colossus character? Like, where's the big, where's Maul? Where's, you know... And we said, we don't want to do any, I mean, like our biggest character was uh, Mondo and Mondo was just a big, you know, Samoan and Hawaiian t-shirt, you know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, we wanted to make a group that, because up until then you got to say there's like, you know, Cyberforce and Wildcats and Wetworks and right. all the New Mutants books and everybody was always trying to do the X-Men and we were like, we're going to do the not X-Men and I always thought 25 years ago that when we did it, that we were going to be the book that people started to knock off. But really, nobody has done it since. There's really not been any book that, like, you know, maybe, maybe the Umbrella Academy, you could argue. But, like, you know, like every time we've seen the New Mutants books or, you know, X-Men or New X-Men or all these other books that have come forth since, mm-hmm. there's never been that feel of Generation X. There's never been that feel of, like, you know, you know, you, you do a lot of team, but like I did a uh, team Titans at one point and they said, you could have seven characters, but four of them have to be the core for Robin and wonder girl and da da da. And it was like, you know, when you look at generation X, it really only had three characters that we knew. And then everybody else was brand new. Yeah. Which is like something that you really don't see very often anymore. And like this generation X, I mean, you know, it looks good, but to me it looks like, you know, New Mutants and X-Men Academy and Avengers Academy, there's nothing like, you know, you don't look at it and go, oh, wow, that's, what am I looking at? You know, right. so, which I think was important at the time. I don't know if it's important now, but it's that then. So yeah. did you get to choose your artist on this? Bob and I have been going back and forth about, not back and forth, we were kept saying, well, what about, I don't know, I don't know. And then Chris was working over at DC and Bobby Chase brought him over to do Ghost Rider 2099, and then we had to do uh, X-Men Unlimited number one, and Chris was around to draw it, and so 
four pages in, I went into Bob's office and I go, I figured it out. I figured out who should do Generation X. He goes, oh, I already did. I already figured out uh, uh, Chris Pichella. I go, that's what I was going to say. So <laughs> nice. it was just perfect yeah. that he, uh, and it was funny because I called Chris that day and I said, hey, um, I'm Scott Lovedahl and I want you to write, uh, I want you to work on uh, Generation X and it's a new book and it's going to be da, 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 da. And he goes, yeah, I don't, um, I don't draw like uh, Jim Lee, so you don't want me. And mm-hmm. I said, if I wanted Jim Lee, I would have called up Jim Lee and begged Jim Lee to do the book. I said, but I want you, and I want you to do what you do. And he's like, yeah, but you don't understand. He goes, I was, you know, when I was doing death, there's a scene where two people were sitting on a, a, a stoop together, and so I did two pages of just their knees. You know, like mm-hmm. when one was talking, the other was turning away, and da, yeah. da. and and he said, you know, and they made me redo it, and you know, but that's where my head is at. And I said, well, Chris, I'll make your deal. Uh, if you send me two pages of knees, then I'll draw two pages of knees. And so this went back and forth, and he said no. And then about three months later, because we weren't in, it wasn't on the schedule yet. So about three months later, he called, and apparently uh, he was telling somebody about how he turned it down. And his wife was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Call them right now and beg for that job. <laughs> so well, he called me. He's like, is that still open? And they're like, sure. And so that was another two months before San Diego. And Chris was like, all right, if we're going to do, because he, 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 uh, he had to finish up whatever his project was. And he said, um, all right, well, send me who the characters are so I can get started so that when we meet in San Diego. And I said, yeah, I don't really, that's not, I, I said, I don't want to do that. I said, I'd rather we meet and come up with the characters. I said, I don't, you know, you're not like the artist, you're the co-creator, and I want to, you know, see what we want to do. And so we met in San Diego. It was me and Bob and his wife and Chris. And I said, you know, the only character I know for sure I want is a character called Chamber. And the idea is, is that, like, he, the very first time he used his power, he blew out his whole chest cavity in his jaw so there's just this energy pouring out of him and he goes uh yeah that's really cold but uh that would be impossible to draw (laughs) yeah and i said you know it'd be impossible for most people chris but you i know can do it and so uh he had a sketchbook and i thought it was an accident but he reminded me recently that it was a sketchbook that he had and goes well just tell me what you're through this sketch and then uh, maybe like three or four weeks later he, he showed me uh, Chamber for the first time and the very first time I saw it, it was like okay that's you know it's perfect so it was you know it's one, one of the most iconic things about the book is is that is Chamber's chest mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's yeah and, and to me like that was like right there right as soon as you look at it you go okay this is a group that is not a group that looks like any other and then he called me up and he's like what if um, we have like a Wonder Woman character but she's this kind of small um, black girl you know Arab girl and I said well that would be cool I said but what if she was twins and one is autistic and one isn't and so she's 18 but when she's not she's only nine she's two nine year olds and then at one point it's going to be revealed that she's two nine year olds and one of them is autistic and then Emma and Banshee are going to have to argue over whether or not she's safer being a superhero at 19 or 18 than she is at two separate kids. Like, is it their place to say, no, we don't want you to be safe, so be something else? And 
And what was fun is that, you know, at least originally there was the idea that Jubilee and her were always fighting. And part of that fighting was M was always, uh, Monet was always, uh, you know, this arrogant jerk to Jubilee. And what made it fun was that Jubilee eventually was going to discover that she'd been arguing with I'm like, you know, that, that M, M's personality was that of the dominant sister. Right. But, you know, it came off as arrogant, but she was really just immature because she was young. And so, so, but that was it. Like, we would go back and forth with ideas and, you know. So, like, people will say, like, well, who'd you invent and who'd christen? And it's like, it's really not, it wasn't that simple because it was like, you know. Yes, he came up with the idea of a, a black Wonder Woman, like a character who was just could do everything. And then I was like, okay, but what's her problem? You know, like what is keeping her from you know, just being a regular superhero? So, so that was very fun. And then, uh, you know, that's how those characters started to, to gel. And why did you bring Jubilee into the book? I think because if you're going to have a school and teach characters about using their powers, and Jubilee really at the time only was like a spark plug. And it just wouldn't make sense for Professor X to be like, well, there's a school over here and we're teaching all these kids about the superpowers, but you hang out with Uncle Logan, so you don't have to go to get powers. <laughs> yeah. you know, so it, was like, it just didn't make any sense to me. But I loved her. I mean, I loved her whole attitude in the first few issues where she's like, uh, you know, when I was about the X-Men, yeah. and everybody's like, shut up about the X-Men, please. And, you know, that's something I was looking at something the other day, and they were talking about the thing. And one of the things that I liked about Generation X, it was one of the conversations I had early on, was that this wasn't about the next generation of X-Men. It was about the next generation of mutants. And, you know, if you decided you wanted to become a, an X-Men, that would be great. If you decided you wanted to go to university and never put on a costume, that's great, too. Like, it was just about learning about your powers. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, like, a fun, you know, at the time, I thought, oh, that's a fresh, you know. Yeah, and the stories reflected that, too. They weren't going into outer space, and they weren't, you know, facing Magneto or anything like that. They're, they were dealing with issues that were appropriate to where they were. Yeah, like that first, uh, when, what's her name, uh, Paige got drunk, because she found out that, like... <laughs> right. For all her studying and everything else, at the end of the day, she could just die from a disease. It's like, wait a minute, how is that fair? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about um, creating Penance and Emplate? Did you have their whole family history in mind when you created them? Well, they were never really, uh, Emplate was never related to uh, Penance. Is she now or no? Yes, technically. Um, okay, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I think after I left, Larry made them the twins or something? Or? Yeah, so Penance is Monet. That's what he said. And then the twins, she was turned into Penance, and the twins turned themselves into Monet to cover that up or something like that. Mm. Then the twins turned Monet back, so Monet was there, but then the twins became Penance or something like that. It was very convoluted, but they are all connected, yeah. Okay, yeah. Ultimately, the story was going to be that, I want to say Yvette, was that her name? I don't remember. That's uh, the name in the collector's preview, but I don't know that it was ever used in the series. Okay, so Yvette was a Yugoslavian war orphan. Okay. And the idea is that she was deaf, and because she was deaf, there's that scene in the beginning of uh, Generations where, um, I think it was the second issue, where 
or maybe third issue where uh, Jubilee is trying all these different languages on her and she won't respond to any of them. Right. And so it's like, well, where is she from? Where is she from? And it turns out she's deaf. And even when, uh, what's her name, uh, Emma goes into her head, she can't figure it out because she doesn't have a frame of reference. She doesn't have any, she doesn't understand language. So oh, yeah. Emma didn't realize it at the time, but what that meant was, you know, Emma just couldn't figure out, like, what the fuck is going on inside this person's head. But really what it was is that she had no basis for, you know, being able to communicate. So the idea of words meant nothing to her. So, you know, and so identifying things by words meant nothing to her because she didn't even have this concept of, like, oh, that is a chair or that is a, you know, whatever the word for chair is in Yugoslavia. Wow. And so that was, and also, like, you know, the idea of that her power, we were going to find out, was kind of like a, the mutant equivalent of a porcupine in the sense that she didn't quite understand the world, so she needed to keep the world at a distance, and that's why she had all those, uh, that's why her power was such that if you touched her, you would slice your hand off or something. Mm. So that was a, a character in, in and of herself, and that was that. M, like I say, was always going to be the twins who merged to become M. And if you look, like, there's so many clues. Uh, the very, 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 very first time we see her in Fallon's Covenant, like, the first line of dialogue is, you know, the nanny saying something about the twins or reference or something. I forget what it is because it's been, as you know, it's been about almost 25 years, so I don't remember. But I remember when I wrote it, putting in, like, all these clues so that when the t- reveal came that she was the twins, you'd go, oh, yeah. Well, like, even when we saw her in uh, Generation Next, and she was know-it-all, and she was the autistic sister who had been hooked up to the machine. Mm-hmm. That was another clue, you know. Oh, so there's yeah. all these clues that it was. And then the other, you know, end play was just going to be her brother who was um, stuck. I think the idea was that he was stuck in another dimension. The only way he could stay in this dimension was to suck on the marrow of mutants, young mutants. And so that was the idea. And then the question became, like, well, it's one thing if you're, a vampire and you're dead and you're trying to maintain your dead life by, you know, killing people. But the notion that, okay, you're a mutant and because you're a mutant, it pulls you into this other dimension and your way out is through other people. So it's like, which is more important, you or the other person? Or, you know, or like, why is the other person's life more important than M plate's life, except for the fact that M plate looks so horrific and you know, that's why he had the breathing device and stuff. It was all about him trying to stay in this world with us. Okay. So, wow. The idea was to make him a very tragic, tragic villain. Like, you know, not unlike uh, Magneto at his most tragic when he's not holding clothes for the new mutants. They're mm-hmm. sneaking out the back window. One question I had is why did it take so long to introduce Mondo to the team? It probably wouldn't have taken so long except for the. Um, when when Age of Apocalypse happened, we had a choice of uh, leaving Generation X out of it because they just started, and it's like, are we going to like putting them in another book? You know, like just stopping and doing something else with them. We don't even know them, right? And I think it turned out well, but it was definitely a, a choice. And in making that choice, it meant extending everything outwards. So technically, without those four issues sooner. But like say he was he was probably scheduled for like issue five to be honest. But then when you mutant uh, when uh, Age of Apocalypse happened and then you know we came out from that, it just it just kept putting it off. And 
Right. You know, like right now I'm I'm writing uh, Redhead and the Outlaws for DC, mm-hmm. and about three months ago they're like, hey, what if you did this story where the Redhead and the Outlaws battle the original Redhead and the Outlaws? And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And we planned it, but now we're up to issue 20, and I don't see it on the horizon. No room for it. Huh. And so that just kind of, uh, you know, it just kind of happens sometimes. Or, you know, right. planning and it's like, okay, well, let's do this story, and then it just it never seemed like the right time to bring Mondo in. And so that's why it was so so late in the game. Okay. But you can see, like, in the, uh, when you look at the uh, Generation X previews and stuff, and that one, it's a volleyball game. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's in there. Probably <laughs> narrating. Yeah, that would give you an indication that like, that's where, like, he was supposed to be, like, with them. Right. Just never, uh, you know. Wow. And speaking of Age of Apocalypse, did you know when Generation X launched uh, that you would be interrupting it in four issues? Uh, no, not when the very first launch, no. Oh, okay. Oh, just like I say, it was a decision, like, do we keep it out of it and yeah. be like, just stay true to Generation X? But my thing was that we learned so much about who those characters were because of the experience in Generation X, that I thought that Generation X was worth it. So you tell yeah. me, you were you were a kid back then. What did you think? <laughs> well, I was, um, first of all, I just loved Age of Apocalypse. I think I was 13 or 14 at the time, and it was it just uh, totally blew my mind. So I didn't mind that it was interrupted. And also you might have felt bad if it wasn't interrupted, because I mean, what would have felt like, oh. Right, like why are these guys left cool out? To be in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was neat to see to see these characters that we had just been introduced to all of a sudden turned on their head and given a, a future or a glimpse of what uh, what could be and maybe some of these characters could go down this road eventually. And yeah, just uh, the way you handled characters like like Husk and even Mondo, who we didn't and really know. that was so sad when she died. Oh, my God. Yeah. Remember? The the, the ending of that miniseries is just, uh, it's, it stood out amongst all of the uh, all of the Age of Apocalypse endings as one of the most tragic. Yeah, so this fortune. Um but. well, and speaking of Age of Apocalypse, let's talk about Blink a little bit cuz you had her kind of originally in uh, in those couple of issues of Uncanny when we meet a bunch of the characters for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think I read in the collector's preview that you weren't sure at the time what you were planning to do with the character. So what I wasn't uh, sure about like weren't sure if you liked her? Well, I mean, I always liked her. The thing is, is that what happened was that the easiest way to make a character popular is to kill them off, and then everybody wants them. Yeah. So my feeling was, okay, I knew when she was invented that she was going to die. Like, she was invented essentially to die. Okay. So that was her reason for being. And then when, for the months after that, leading into Generation X, every, you know, all the fan mail came in. They're like, bring back Flink. And so... Then when we started to do Age of Apocalypse, I go, oh, my God, it's going to be four issues, and then it's going to end, which means she's going to die. <laughs> again. So I'll come back, <laughs> but only to kill her again. Like, that'll be so yeah. funny to me. Like, okay, like, we'll give you, well, you say you want her, here she is, oh, it's gone again. Yeah, right. And so that was the uh, the fun of, like, bringing her back. But Fabian, as much as I love him, was always kind of a whore in the sense that he always wanted, like, Rogue and Gambit, and he always wanted, you know, like, the good characters for his book and whatever characters I get, blah, blah, blah. So when we did Age of Apocalypse, we were all sitting around the diner. It was me, Joe Mad, the Cuberts, Fabian, Bob Harris, a few editors. And we were sitting around saying, okay, who do you want? And I go, I want more from the TV show. But 
it, that's in the TV show continuity, so I can't have Morph. So I'll take Changeling, who's the mutant who died pretending to be Professor X in like X Men fifty four right. back in like seventy something. Yeah, and I go, that'd be cool because he is so fucked up that he, he can't even like keep his shape. That's you know, so he looks like this kind of like white plastic thing because he's so fucked up from being in the age of apocalypse that he can't even hold his own form. And they're like, uh, uh, yeah, okay, change thing <laughs> more, okay. And Joe's like, oh, and he starts like googling, and then I go, and I want um, Blink, and they're like, who's that? Who, wait, who is Blink? I go, Blink. Alex <laughs> coming in. The one, they're like that girl that like died in three issues. I go, yeah, yeah, her, and Sabretooth. But in this version, Sabretooth would be cool. And he has Wild Child on a chain that he keeps on his wrist. And then when he, he lets him off and when he's done, he like slams him against the wall and throws him over his shoulder. And they're just like, <laughs> you have totally lost it. Like, you know, that's, re- okay, that's weird. And Joe's like dueling going, oh my God, that was so fun. He's like drawing, uh, you know, Wild Child perched yeah. like a cat on Sabretooth. <laughs> And that was it. I mean, I, I, you know, we just wanted to be like, okay, if this is going to be a Apocalypse, it should be like, you know, this isn't your, you know, the X-Men you're used to. Of course. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So that was the idea of, like, bringing uh, Blink in was to, you know, just give it a different deal. You know, and I thought, okay, when we saw Blink originally, she was Clarice, and she was very frightened, and, you know, because she was being held captive. And, and I said, well, if we're going to bring her back. Let her just be this total badass and even when we saw her finally go up against Onslaught it was like not Onslaught it was Holocaust she was uh, you know so cool yeah what was your working relationship with Chris Vicello like did you do did you just send him scripts um, or I mean plots and then let him kind of go to town yeah yes I only sent him plots and he he always went to town the only thing the only time in the very beginning when we did Age of the when we did uh, X-Men Unlimited Mm-hmm. So there's a panel where we introduced Game Master or whatever his name is and Chris drew him and he drew him like from almost from behind but sort of from the side and he's like I am Game Master or whatever and I was like you know what you gotta kind of think of it like a, um, like an opera like when an opera brings on a character they like sing for five minutes about who this character is and then that character comes in center stage and there's a big spotlight and it's like, I am the person they've just been telling you about and here I am. <laughs> and so when I wrote the plot for Generation X number one, I just said, I would just call them opera shots. And even now, like to this day, I'll talk to an artist and I'm like, it needs to be an opera shot. It needs to be like, you know, when we see Monet for the first time, it has to be like that t-shirt image that you'd put on you know, Monet, and the first time we see Sink and Skin fighting when they come out of the Danger Grotto, like, that should be their opera shot. And so that just became, but other than that, like, you know that famous, uh, famous, not, you know that famous scene with uh, Jubilee on the plane, well, you know, when the plane is about to go down and she's blowing the bubbles? Yep. And the bubbles, like, are all, like, through the panels, yep. interweaving, blah, 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 blah. Totally. The bubbles were nowhere in the plot. All it was is, like, you know, they're talking and this is going on and then the plane is about to go down and blah, blah, blah. And Chris just went crazy and like made a bubble frame and the bubbles are, you know, 
And I was like, okay, that's, you know, and the editor was like, uh, w- did you ask for this? I go, no, but I did not ask for it either. So, <laughs> you know, so we just, uh, you know, that Halloween issue with the, uh, the demons were running around and, and I think there's another one, the Christmas issue where they had the elves running around. And yeah, I remember looking at it going, well, okay, they're here. I might as well use them and like write a story with them or something. And that <laughs> just all came from, you know, I just, you know, what Chris turned in, I wrote. And one time there's a scene, if you remember, there's a scene uh, where Angelo is flashing back and he's waiting for a bus. Mm-hmm. Or not flashback, I guess he goes back to his old town, right? And he's waiting for a bus and the bus shows up and this woman who may have been, I think it was his mother, yep. saw him, but she doesn't know it's him. And then she walks off. And Chris drew the page and said, I think this page needs dialogue and this is what I think should be on it. And I was like, um, you were wrong because everything that you needed to do is there in the art, so there's not going to be in dialogue. And he's like, I think you're wrong. I said, mm, I don't think I'm wrong. And so when it came out, he saw it, and he was like, oh, my God, it was so beautiful. I go, yes. <laughs> Didn't even work. So, but that was, you know, it was great. It was a great to work with Chris. And even now, I, um, I just wrote a series where I wrote those six issues of the series by script because the publisher wanted me to do it that way. And in it, I say, you know, the five characters are all shocked because of blah, blah, blah. But I don't make it, I make a point not to talk about exactly what the reactions are, which is what I would normally do sometimes. But then the reason I did it is because I want the artist who's going to take over the series to make the characters his as much as they are mine. And like, you know, sometimes, no offense saying that, but, like, you'll see an issue of, like, uh, Justice League or something where something will happen and Batman will be surprised and the other five characters are, like, standing there, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the good thing about Chris is that if anybody was on camera, they were acting. You know, they were they were either acting or reacting, and that's what made his stuff so good. Like, it never felt like pinups. It felt like a bunch of people were, like shocked or a bunch of people like you know that these characters are reacting to things mm-hmm. and that's what you know i mean i think it was the beauty of the way chris and i worked together was you know i would throw it out there and then he would do it oh, like there's a, um there's an issue of generation not generation i'm sorry redhead and the outlaws where uh this villain has taken over a hospital full of children and the outlaws have to stop them and at one point, Starfire shows up, and Starfire was a slave when she was a child, so she's really sensitive to uh, children being at risk. So when the bad guys confront her, she just evaporates them. Or, you know, she, I'm sorry, she, you know, burns them. And Kenneth Rutherford, I get the pages back, and the characters, she incinerates the characters, and then. Uh, Arsenal is there with a fire extinguisher and he's like putting out the terrorist that he just, that she just killed. Oh. And he just did it for fun. He's like, okay, well that may, you know, like what if, you know, Arsenal comes up with a fire extinguisher and throws out and he never said anything about it. Yeah. And I never said anything about it. I just, in fact, I don't even have the character reference it at all, which makes it even funnier because it's just like, you know, what? Um, <laughs> But that's the type of thing where, like, you know, I always love artists to be invested and 
you know, add things in because it should be, it should be a collaborative, you know, it's not, I mean, I was a stand-up comedian for five years and when you're a comedian, you're pretty much, you know, you know, you have to deal with what happens, but you're not, uh, technically your audience is not really your partner. And when people like try to help from the audience, they're usually not helpful, but right. they think they are. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, uh, whereas with this, you know, with a comic book, it is, it's, you know, you're working with the artist. And so the more fun you can get the artist to have with you, the better off the product is going to be. Mm-hmm. I would say product that sounds, but you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, later on in, in your run on Generation X, you introduced a, like a, a whole bunch of side characters. And I always got the feeling like someone was telling you, we got to use these characters. Can you stick them in here? And it's like, how oh, yeah, the duck no, no. and Tana Nile. You and... know, that's a, yeah, that was the complete opposite. I was not, no one was telling me to do anything. Okay. Um, I just felt that like, you know, like, you know, it's kind of like the same thing with, um, with Jubilee. It's like, okay, you have a school for mutants and then you have mutants who are younger. And it's like, why would you not, have Artie and Meech there. Like, it doesn't make any sense that they would be like, you know, all right, you guys go live with the Morlocks and the uh, sewers. You right. You know, because yeah. you're ugly. It's like, what? So that was the idea was to, uh, you know, I mean, those, they did kind of come in organically. And, and then I also love to do things like uh, uh, Chamber and, or Jonathan and uh, Angelo are. Yeah, on their road trip. Driving get on a road trip and who pulls up a Howard the Duck it's like what you know like I love like making use of the far corners of whatever universe I'm in mm-hmm. well so, very far um, corners in this case yes why did that annoy you or? well it was just it was just so random I didn't um, because they're like Howard the Duck and Tana Nile and Franklin Richards and Man Thing are like all from completely different worlds here and you stick them all together and I enjoyed because you and then they got spun out into the the Daydreamers miniseries, and yeah, I, I didn't know what the hell that was. About. That was so strange. <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that was about. Well, you know, that was that was. I remember Bob uh, Harris like has always loved uh, the Little Nemo books or whatever mm-hmm. that world. And I never, I've never read an issue, so I don't know. I, I never read the, the Daydreamer series. Okay, I don't know what it's about. But well, it's just them traveling through different dimensions basically <laughs> and then yeah like i say that was that's what he liked he always liked that little nemo thing yeah, of like totally finding a strange new world um but then they never came back to the book which was the, the that was the annoying part is like you introduced them here and <laughs> then they they got taken away and then they never came back and no one ever yeah, asked about know. them either <laughs> it was uh it was, <laughs> it was very that's strange funny. yep <laughs> well you know what's funny is i um I had an editor recently say to me, like, oh, you know, we just did this thing with the Teen Titans where, you know, they're on the run, and then uh, Amanda gets them and tries to get them to be members of the Suicide Squad, but then a leader of the group, like, says no and, like, tricks her into, like, not taking them, like, they come up with a deal. And so maybe he did something like that with Outlaws. And he goes, and you could probably do it better and we did it. It really didn't work. I go, it actually worked 20 issues earlier when I did the exact same thing in, in Teen Titans. You know, like <laughs> that was exactly what I did. And they literally let 
you know, whoever took over the book just did not read right. my run. Yeah. And it's like, and that's fine. I don't care. I'm not like, I don't have an ego, but it just is funny. It's like, you really should, when you take over a book, read and figure out, you know, where. Yeah. Follow through with some are. of those. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. But you know, that's the other thing too, is, I mean, I got the impression towards the end of generation X like that they didn't know what it was really about. And so, you know, like, and they came back and they killed a bunch off and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, they just didn't know what the book was. So. Right. Yeah. But, it's true. You know, it's one thing to change a book to change it, but yeah. it's another book. You know, if you don't know what it was beforehand, how do you change it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In issue 25, you have, it's kind of like um, your, a lot of things are coming to a head here in this um, anniversary issue. But Mondo, he turns bad and re- reveals that he's kind of been watching everybody the whole time and, why Why did you go in that direction with this character? Well, I mean, I think the idea was that, I mean, this is this is not uh, exactly right because it's been 20 years. So I'm only giving you my, in this case, I'm giving you the memory of what I think I was thinking at the time. Okay, yeah. But I don't necessarily know it's true. But I remember thinking that I liked him in Generation Next. Right. And that I had probably misused him in the book going forward at that time. And so because he was such an organic character and, you know, Man-Thing was in the book, I think, and, you know, Black Tom Cassie, who was always able to control those things. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, what would happen if Banshee lives through this experience with this character that he knows and has come to love, and then you realize that, oh, wow, this was like the worst thing that could have happened to him. And then... Banshee was in a position where he's on the beach and Mondo, the real Mondo walks by and he looks and he thinks to himself like, do I take this kid who's like sweet and lovable and just like this bouncy walking along the beach thing and expose him to this horrific world where he died or do I just leave him be? Hmm. And to me, like that was a question that Banshee would, you know, I mean, Professor X would be like, Professor X would not have any thoughts about it. He'd be like, you're coming with me and I'm going to make you the best you can be. And, you know, uh, what's his face? Cable would be like, you know, you're going to be good. And if not, then you're going to die. That's your own fault. And Banshee would be the only one that would go, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. You know, I don't know if I should just let him live his little happy island life or bring him into the fold. And so that was, uh, that was my thinking. And I don't know. I mean, that, I have a recollection that that scene does happen somewhere, doesn't it? Or did it just happen in my head? Um, I I'm not sure that it did, but I I I might have to reread and find out. But, you know, the other thing too is like I mean, I kind of like to do things that like like I was uh, when I did Teen Titans a few years ago. I had them, you know, they were a group that were coming together, and they meet Batgirl, mm-hmm. and I had Batgirl beat the shit out of them, and everybody was like, "You can't do that!" Like the editors were like, "You can't do that!" And I go, "Why?" And they're like. Well, because it's their book. I'm like, so what does it matter if they're both? I mean, you know, they're just coming together as a group. They're not a group. She's Batgirl. She's tough as nails. You know, she should be able to beat the crap out of them. And they're like, no, 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 she can't. She can fight, but then she has to get, you know, eat and da-da-da. And to me, it's like, it makes way more sense that Batgirl, who's been doing this for a long time, should be able to come a bunch of kids right. who are just learning their superpowers and yeah. beat them up. But they're like, oh, no, you can't do that. And... Even once in a while, like, I'll try to have Red Hood lose. And they're like, no, no, they should win. And I'm like, why should they win? And, I mean, that was, to me, the funnest part about Chris and John's X-Men run was, you know, the X-Men 
went on that long thing. It started at the circus and then went to the Antarctica and then it went to Japan. And it's like, you know, they just, you know, and then they got kidnapped by uh, Alpha Flight and it went to Canada. And then, I mean, it started even before that, it started when they were up in the stars. And to me, it was great. It was like the X Men just had their asses kicked for, you know, eight months. And you were like, holy wow, this is like cool. Yeah. Like, as opposed to the Avengers who were always, you know, taking Kang by the collar and throwing him in jail or something. Right. You know? So to me, like, I'm all for things, you know, not being what you want them to be. So to me, like, having it, the reveal be that this was not the Mondo that you were looking for was interesting to me. So, yeah. And sometimes I do things that are interesting to me and not necessarily... Well, you don't want you your know, readers to be want. too comfortable. Keep Never. Them, <laughs> keep them on, your t- on their toes. You know, I remember one time I was at a, a, I was at a convention and to me this you know, what if it was, like, what if, you know how they're always on the run, like the X-Men are, are on the run? What if, like, the government, like, it took them in and, like, appreciated them and they were, like, made them their heroes? <laughs> like, oh, that would be, like, it would be like watching, like, Robin Hood and the Married Man and being like, oh, what if Robin got a job as the sheriff of Nottingham? Yeah, you know, right. Like, <laughs> so, and that's what, I mean, they've been done that with, like, Uncanny Avengers and blah, blah, blah. But I just, you know, to me, it was like it's the opposite of what you want in, you know, like why the book is the book in the first place. So why why but, did you leave the uh, why did you leave Generation X at issue twenty eight? Um, I don't really remember. I mean, it was uh, I was doing a lot of books at the time, and so I uh, I don't really remember why that. Okay, but, fair enough. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing too is I I will tell you that when uh, Chris, you know, Chris had been on the book for seventeen years. He'd been on the X Men for seventeen years. And yep. I was on the book about seven years, I guess, altogether. But I always said, I always, always, always said, I said, look, I don't want to be that guy that you, like, pry away from the key. You know, you take his wheelchair and you pull him away from the keyboard and, <laughs> like, you know, grabbing the keys. I don't yeah. want to be that guy. And, you know, and, like, Peter David, God bless him, it was like, you know, when he got booted from the Hulk, everybody's mad. It's like, well, that's his book. And it's like, mm, it's not his book. It's, you know, it's a book that he's on, but it's not his book. Yeah. And and let someone else have I've always felt that way. Yeah, and I always felt that way about Generation X, too. I thought, okay, I got it off to a good start. I mean, I don't think, you know, unfortunately, I don't think Larry uh, read the book or was familiar with enough of it to make the characters consistent. Right. I know, I mean, that's the impression I got. But, you know, and everybody, when you take over a book, you have to make choices, and they're not always the choices that the previous person wanted to make. Right. But I do feel like, okay, I, you know, I started Generation I mean, I kind of, between you and I... And who's ever listened to your podcast? I do think that you know. At the time, I thought, okay, I'd created something that was fairly foolproof because it did have its own rhythm and it was a particular type of book. And just the same way, like when I took over Chris, when I took over from Chris, I had to kind of write the X Men in a similar fashion to the way Chris was doing it, um, at least initially. I kind of felt like I had created a team and, a, and an attitude for the book that would could maintain even if I wasn't there, but it did not turn out that way. Right. Well, That's not the impression if, I got. Yeah. I mean, you you read the book, so you you know better. But I, I, yeah, definitely there is there is that shift right there. But uh, I mean, that happens if you don't like you can't know what the rhythm is if you don't ever listen to the rhythm. <laughs> so what what was your favorite moment from Generation X? The stuff that you wrote. Yeah, I'd probably have to say that moment of. Uh, I did like that. Well, I like the Scrabble game. Yeah, I love Paige dealing with the reality that, you know, here's this girl, all she wants to be is the best mutant she can be, 
and then be told, oh, by the way, you're probably going to die because you're immune. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I can't even defend myself against it. I thought, you know, and at the time, you know, AIDS and everything else was in the front of people's minds. So just that sequence in Generation X, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've told this story before, but what happened was I was, uh, I knew that, you know, all the series, all the miniseries had to end at a certain place. And I knew that that meant that uh, Eliana had to get back in order to be used for the final story in Age of Apocalypse Beta or whatever it's called. Yeah. Gamma or Omega or something. Omega, yeah. But everything else is kind of up in the air. And I had this girlfriend whose last name was Espinosa, who, was, who I named, uh, I actually named uh, Skin after her. Okay. Um, at least her last name. Right. And um, we broke up, and it was a terrible breakup. It was the only time in my life that, well, maybe only two times in my life that I was actually sad when I broke up with somebody. And I was really, really, really sad. And when I sat down to the computer to write Generation X4, I was like, everybody dies because I was so sad. And so (laughs) that's why that ending is so depressing. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's how I was feeling at the time. And, you know. Wow. So that's why uh, that's why that was such a tra- tragic. And then even like the sad part with Paige looking at Colossus, like you're really going to do this. You're really going to leave us here. That was the die. worst. Yep, that worst. She's just looking behind her as the door's closing. Holy cow! Yep. Yeah. But then, but then he goes to Kitty, and he's like, "Yeah, I tried," and she is like, "Oh," and she realizes that he didn't really try. Yeah. And you realize that. He saved his sister, but he lost the kids. But really, he lost Kitty as well in that moment. Mm-hmm. Even though you know, even though they didn't all live very much longer, we knew that that was the end of the two of them because she was never gonna never, forgive him. Yeah. Um, so that was you know like you know moments like that were always my favorites. Wow, uh, great, Scott. Thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, no, it was fun. It's fun. It's weird and it's fun. You know, it's weird to like reach back into your memory from 25. Like, how old are you? Me, I'm 36. Okay, so imagine if somebody came and did an interview with you about what your life was like. You were 11. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I couldn't tell you much. Paid yeah. for my school lunch with my money. I don't remember. You know. Yeah, well, uh, let me tell you. I've um, been interviewing a bunch of other people. I talked to Joe Sinnott the other day, and that guy has a razor-sharp memory. I can't believe it. He's 92, oh, and yeah, he okay. remembers things so well. But then other people are yeah, like, this was, this was 15 years ago. I don't remember. So it, uh, <laughs> it's amazing how, how things how go. How did like I that. do? Somewhere in between? I think you did pretty good. I mean, I got the answers to these questions that I've wondered for years, so I'm, I'm happy with <laughs> the way it turned out. 